Okay, hello everyone and welcome to Actus Radio, the nation's only radio program dedicated to the clinical documentation improvement profession. Actus Radio is a bi-weekly program dedicated to bringing you closer to the difference makers in CDI and sharing the latest news and information relevant to the CDI profession and to Actus. Today, Wednesday, February 28th, marks our 91st program. So my name is Brian Murphy, Director of Actus, the Association of Clinical Documentation Improvement Specialists, and I'm your host for today's program, Q&A with the CDI Bootcamp Instructors. Next, I'd like to introduce our two instructors today, both familiar faces to regular listeners of Actus Radio. We have with us at left, Sharm Brody. Uh, Sharm is an RNCCDS and is a full-time instructor for our CDI boot camps here at Actus, as well as a subject matter expert. She has more than 35 years in the healthcare industry, including multiple areas of nursing and a variety of roles. Prior to joining us here, she worked as a consultant providing program audits, implementation, continuing ed for CDI departments. Um, she's implemented and overseen CDI departments in both large academic and small community hospitals and uh, is a co-author of our recently released The Essential Guide to Supporting Quality Care Measures Through Documentation Improvement. You've probably seen Charm on many articles uh, in CDI Journal and our CDI Strategies publication as well as a regular co-host here. So welcome to the program, Charm. Hi, Brian. Nice to be here today. Absolutely. And then we have with us Alan Frady. Uh, Alan's another regular on Actus Radio and is a CDI education specialist also with us here at Actus. Uh, Alan teaches our CDI boot camps, serves as a subject matter expert. His background includes uh, accomplishments in consulting with a background in coding and documentation. Uh, 12 years as a coding consultant, two as a coding director, and six years as a CDI consultant. His nursing experience includes work as a case manager and in cardiovascular care and ICU and telemetry. And I want to welcome him to the program. So welcome, Alan Frady. Thank you for having me on, Brian. Absolutely. All right. We're going to start with a poll, uh, actually not related to today's subject. Um, it's related to our in-the-news item, which we'll get to in a bit. Uh, our subject today is a little bit of a piecemeal of some commonly received questions. These actually came from students in boot camps and act as members that our instructors have answered, and we're going to share with uh, those with you today. But our in-the-news um, topic is related to today's poll, which really, which reads, excuse me, how big of a problem is copy-paste in your facility? Um, it's a major problem, which maybe we consider widespread or out of control even. Uh, is it somewhat of a problem? Maybe some physicians guilty of this or the, some folks documenting in the record. A minor problem occasionally crops up as an issue. Don't know or not applicable. Again, how big of a problem is copy-paste in your facility? Major, somewhat of a problem, minor problem, don't know, or not applicable. All right, showing our results, getting pretty steady here. About 80% of our audience has voted, so I'm gonna go ahead and close that out. And we will, of course, uh, come back to that a little bit later in the show. All right. So as I mentioned, our guest today 
are Sharm Brody and Alan Frady. Um, Sharm and Alan, welcome to the program. Thanks for being a part of Actus Radio. So today, as we've discussed, we're going to be covering some recent questions. Um, these have been asked by a combination of our Actus members, as well as uh, students in our CDI boot camps. So let's go ahead and, and just jump right in. Uh, we have a lot to cover today, and if I can, I'll try to work in some questions from the audience. Can't promise that, but we'll, we'll, we'll take. I'll be monitoring those as well. So please send those in. Um, start with a question directed first to Sharm. So this reads, I often find congestive heart failure uh, listed under past medical history. Frequently, the patient also has hypertension and coronary artery disease, so they're on medications. And when I query for the type of CHF, the providers sometimes document no CHF. I've heard before, though, that CHF is an ongoing diagnosis like COPD. I'm very confused because more than once a provider has said to me that the CHF is in their history and not a current diagnosis. Is this possible or is CHF always an ongoing condition? So I'll turn it over to you, Sharm, to start. Thanks, Brian. Um, and you know what? This is a common thing that we're seeing and people are asking in the boot camps. Uh, CHF is generally a progressive disease. Uh, the patient can have periods of stability followed by periods of decompensation. Um, it's, a, it's one of those disease processes where every patient, there's a variety, so they can present very differently. Um, so let's talk about what's the, where CHF comes from. It comes from blood backing up uh, into the lungs, the liver, the abdomen, or the lower extremities. Um, I think where some of the confusion comes from is in, in this is that not all types of heart failure are congestive heart failure. Um, that's why we see a lot of physicians now just using the term heart failure. They've done away with congestive um, in an interesting little tidbit. Um, and actually, I'll let Alan share that with you after I finish. But not all types of heart failure are congestive. Um, and that is why we see the physicians using heart failure instead of CHF. Um, so when they're responding to the queries, there is no congestive heart failure at that time, but the person still has heart failure. Um, and my suggestion would be to this person, when you are querying the physician, it might be helpful to give them the clinical indicators that you've found throughout the episode of care that you are actually reviewing, um, including any of the medications and the treatments that you see, and then ask them, based on the clinical findings, what they actually are treating. Um, Alan had actually shared with me prior to uh, when we were talking, he just wanted to know if I had actually saw this, that the new codes now have actually done away with congestive. And he has a nice little hint on uh, what he's done in his class. So I'm going to let Alan share that with you um, about what he's actually taught his his students of late. Alan, I'm turning it over to you for a minute. Yeah. So one interesting thing about this is how it has evolved. We've always referred to heart failure as congestive heart failure. But if you'll actually open up an ICD-10 code book, you'll see none of the codes say congestive heart failure. Uh, they pretty much all say just heart failure. And I think if you have a patient who's chronic and con controlled and their lungs aren't actually wet, then when you ask the doctor if the patient has congestive heart failure, he's going to say no. Uh, do they have chronic heart failure? Yes. Do they have congestive heart failure today? No, because the lungs are dry. And so I've been encouraging students to just delete the word congested from their vocabulary 
and refer to it as whether it's an acute heart failure or a chronic heart failure or end stage or high output or whatever it is. That's a good uh, one. Back to you. Yeah. Well, I, and then let me just add one more comment, Brian, and then I'll give it back to you. Just wanted to draw everyone's attention to a later coding clinic. It is the first quarter 2016. It actually uh, replaced a coding clinic from the first quarter of 2014. And in the newer coding clinic, it said that we can use the uh, HF, lowercase PEF, for diastolic heart failure, and we can use heart failure with a reduced ejection fraction, or HF, lowercase REF, for systolic. So that, that actually came out with, at first we could not, but in 2016, there was a correction, and it now states that we can. So if you see that in a chart, there would be no reason to query the provider either. And that wraps that up for that question, Brian. All right. Great, great advice. I like the reference there, Charm. And Alan, good point to delete congestive from your vocab, if possible, and go with the heart failure and the type. All right. Let's let's stick with, with heart failure. Um, Another question, I guess we'll start with Alan for this one. Uh, this question from a student, recent student reads, can a type 1 MI really be either uh, STEMI or NSTEMI? Can you report a type 2 MI for supply demand ischemia or ischemic demand? It's complicated. Uh, we could probably do a whole show on the issues with MIs and the new codes we have and the new guidance. But to the first part of the the question, <clears throat> yes, although rare, often a type 1 MI has, is going to have ST elevation, but not always. Sometimes you get ST depression, you get nonspecific ST changes, or even features like new onset pathological Q waves or new onset bundle branch blocks. If you look at what Coding Clinic has to say about how we report these situations, it says that subcategories I21O to I212 uh, and I-213, those codes are used for type 1 ST-elevated MIs. That much we know because that's how we pretty much would have assumed it would have been done. However, also for coding clinic, if you have a type 1 non-ST-elevated MI, which hasn't been addressed prior to this year's coding guidelines, then you actually report it as I-21.4, which is the generic non-ST elevation or NSTEMI code. It's also the same code that you get if the MI is described as non-transmural. So that's a little bit unintuitive because you would assume if you had type 1, you'd want to put the code for type 1. But if it says type 1 NSTEMI, according to reporting guidelines that we have right now, you go and you report that as an NSTEMI. Now to the second part of the question, uh, no, you cannot report a type 2 MI if the physician says that they have uh, supply demand ischemia or ischemic demand, at least not without the documentation stating the word of infarct or infarction. So if the physician describes it as a demand MI or demand ischemia with MI, then it may be reported as a type 2 MI since the physician used the phrase MI and the I stands for infarction. Uh, and that's straight out of Coding Clinic as well. It says ischemic demand MI should be coded as a type 2 MI. Uh, I would encourage you to make sure that MI is actually an approved hospital abbreviation at your facility and it means myocardial infarction 
so you don't run into issues with uh, coders being concerned that it might stand for something else or the auditors trying to claim that they didn't actually call it an infarction. Sean, do you have anything to add to that? No, but I, 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 this is a clear-cut case of where you really have to keep your finger on the pulse of what's going on with the guidance. Um, and the other thing that I love that you um, talked about was that approved abbreviation list, as benign as that seems, you are absolutely correct, that needs to be updated. Uh, somebody needs to go on and make sure that when it does say MI, that that's what the abbreviation stands for. And I find often, and I'm sure that you do too, that we'll get into class and mention that abbreviation list, usually when we're talking about acute blood loss, and people will say, I don't even know where it is. So you want to make sure that that communication is there. And again, like you said, keep your, your finger on the pulse of the guidance. All right. Thanks, guys. Let's move on to question three. This is, we're switching now to uh, uh, respiratory failure. So the question reads, when the physician documents that the patient has both acute hypoxic and acute hypercapnic respiratory failure, should we code both of these diagnoses? Maybe we'll start with you, Sharm, on this one. Oh, my lovely respiratory failure, and people that have taken my class know that we discuss Respiratory failure, I keep telling them I don't want to beat a dead horse, but all of the information I have on respiratory failure for them. But the answer to this question actually lies in how the conditions are indexed. So the first step, as um, with any disease process or any disease, you are going to look it up in the alphabetic index. So when we look up respiratory failure in the alphabetic index, you find that under the main bolded term of failure or failed, you will find when you scroll down, respiration or respiratory code, which would be J96.90. And then when you look further down on the page, you find that both options under the word acute for the J96 code, J96.00, with hypercapnia, and that code is J96.02, and hypoxia code, which is J96.01. Because of this, I now know just by looking it up that both of them there is an option for both of them so if they are documented and of course always clinically supported we're looking for the clinical support it's telling me that both of these conditions can in fact be coded uh, now when you turn to the DRG expert and I want to remind um, the DRG expert is not a code book I often refer to it as the cliff notes to the code book it is not a code book uh, you find that both of these codes in fact go to the same DRG um, so a lot of times people wonder, wh why bother? What, why would I care if they both end up going to the same DRG? One reason is you want to make sure that the chart is accurate for that patient. So um, even though they go to the same DRG, they are two different codes, and we want to make sure that the specificity in the documentation is there for the coder to apply the right code. Um, mm -hmm. Trying to think of what else I want to let you know about. Um, Anything that you think we can add to that, Alan? I'm trying to decide if we should actually give the criteria for the hypoxia um, and the hypercapnia, but um, we could probably add that if somebody would like that on the side. But that's basically yeah. how you tell if two codes can be used. I was going to say, come and take our class. Uh, I'm just kidding. Get <laughs> <laughs> the criteria. Um, I, I will, you know, I will my add. God. <laughs> I will add, though, I think when people are working like APRDRGs and 3M, severity of illness and things, and you know, they want to add another CC. So I have people ask me, can I add um, 
acidosis with respiratory failure? And I think that question is, is changing. It used to be yes. You know, it wasn't assumed that everybody in respiratory failure has acidosis because you have hypoxic respiratory failure. So you, you can't assume that they're retaining CO2 always. However, let's be honest, if they're documenting hypercapnic respiratory failure, then I would assume that it would be redundant to also code acidosis because the fact that he has hyper or he or she has hypercapnic respiratory failure means that uh, they are retaining CO2. And so by, by definition, you're gonna, you can have potential for acidosis. I don't know what 3M, I don't, I'd be interested to see how 3M addresses that because they always want you to show everything and unbundle it. But I think it's included there. Um, if you had unspecified respiratory failure, yeah, you don't, know, you don't know which it is. You don't know which hypoxic or hypercapnic. So maybe you could get away with adding acidosis as another code um, in that situation. And I, and I think we want to add to that, if you have a CDI department, um, that unspecified code should rarely be used. Um, and the other thing we want to add is that we want to make sure that any of these conditions, regardless of the, what they might be, are documented by a hands-on treating provider. We want to make sure that there is no conflict within the record, um, because that would have to be clarified. Um, but a hands-on treating provider with, with no conflict. So, but thank you. I, I agree with what you said, Alan. And I'm going to uh, hand it back point, to you, Brian. Guys. Yeah. I love your comment about the accuracy of the chart, regardless, even if it's the same DRG assignment, it is important to get that accurate. So good, great commentary there, guys. Well, let's let's try to tackle at least one more. We've got, we've got two more questions. We'll try to get to at least one more. We're going to turn this one back over to Alan and, and go back to uh, STEMI versus N. This is this is very common, but uh, so Alan, this question reads: What is more important in reporting the type of MI, i.e., type one, two, three, four, or five, or the STEMI versus NSTEMI? Secondly, the student likes to answer ask two part questions: When would you assign an I twenty two code for a subsequent MI that is a type two through five? Okay, so, so for the first you. part of the sorry, so for the first part of the question, um. <laughs> But, you know, but you would, a lot of people are asking this, right? Now that we have all these new types that are specified by coding clinic, do we need to move away from NSTEMI, STEMI, and all in the EKG representation and, and just ditch those and go for the types? And that was, that was my initial response as well whenever I saw it. Unfortunately, we may still need both. As you saw in the previous question where you had a type 1 MI, that was offset uh, by the fact that it was also specified as not having ST elevation, meaning that you really couldn't accurately report that situation unless you knew both the mechanism, which is type 1 occlusive disease, and the EKG features. So for the coder to figure out how to sort through this Rosetta Stone, basically, uh, they had to be able to get both pieces of information. And what's worse is that the advice from coding clinic is somewhat inconsistent in how it addresses a type 1 and a type 2. Based on the aforementioned rule, you might assume that a type 2 in STEMI would just be reported as an in STEMI. Even a type 2 reported as a STEMI would maybe be reported as a STEMI, but that's not the case. AHA says that when a type 2 MI is also described as an in STEMI or STEMI, you only report it as a type 2. Again, that, that's fourth quarter, 2017, page 84. And, and it is possible, I suppose, to have such a bad type 2 that you get ST elevation. It would be rare, let's be honest, but it could happen. And they're saying that here, clearly, in this instance, the type of the MI 
supersedes the EK presentation with regards to reporting requirements. So the mechanism is what we're capturing, and that's the fact that you have you know, an MI without a fully occlusive disease, but you have a situation where the demand outpaces the supply. And that seems to be the data point with the type two. So it's really all over the map. Now, for the second part of the question, you would never assign an I-22 code for a subsequent MI unless it was a situation where you were dealing with type ones. Coding Clinic says if you have a subsequent type two, you simply code it as a type two. So you don't use the I-22 category, you use an I-21 again. And for subsequent types four and five, you don't use an I-22 code, you use an I-21A9, that's the other category. And we don't assume that you can really have a type three because if they had a type three to start with, they died. And typically for a repeat admission for a type three, you would assume type threes are reserved for people who didn't have a known um, CAD, known MI event recently. Otherwise, the doctor's probably not going to call it a type three anyway. So we're in a very weird situation now where the, we only use subsequent MIs if a patient has back-to-back -back type ones. Um, so we're going to have to relearn everything that we had learned. Sean, do you have anything to add to that one? Uh, no, but I'm, I'm going to ask you maybe to just elaborate a little bit more. Uh, have the time frames changed at all? Because I know that's a question that's going to come up next. Um, we still, and just verifying, we're still with the four weeks, correct? Yeah, we're still within, if we're going to do, uh, you know, a type one and then a subsequent type one, it's still going to have to be within the, the 28 days. Otherwise, the original becomes an old or healed, and you're back to just having a single new type one after 28 days. Yes, perfect. Thank you. No, that's, I, you know, again, it shows that you have to, you have to stay abreast of what Coding Clinic is saying. And this is one of the areas where in class, and I'm sure you've experienced it, it seems like it has gone from uh, one way of looking at it to a completely different, uh, black and white, night and day, however you would like to say it. This is probably the newest confusion and one that is lasting, I would say. So I like would agree said, with that. That's one yes. of our boot camps. <laughs> and we'll cover it in circulatory, correct? Yes. All right. Well, guys, we're we're running past time here. Really appreciate the info. We have an unused question about um, linking UTIs and Foley catheters, but we, we can maybe save that for another day. That's a very common one. Um, but I hope our listeners enjoyed the format of the show and heard some great dialogue that our students would typically hear in a, in a given boot camp. Um, we did get some questions. We'll, I'll take a look at those after the program, but Sharm, someone, one of our listeners named Mary, uh, said thank you for a great boot camp in Vegas from your Valentine. So, oh, I'll, I'll, she uh, did. I'll Can I tell you what a wonderful lady. <laughs> she sent me a Valentine on Valentine's Day with a Kit Kat bar. That's, that's awesome. It All was. Right. <laughs> hope, you saved me some, hope you saved me some of that chocolate, too. Long gone. <laughs> I figured as much. All right. Um, Let's go ahead and go back to our poll question. So again, we are asking a poll question related to um, today's in the news topic, which we're gonna cover in just a second. So we asked folks, uh, how big of a problem is copy paste in your facility? Well, these results probably aren't surprising, although they are, they are alarming. 54% uh, say major problem, widespread or out of control. 41% say somewhat of a problem, some physicians, not guilty of copy-paste. Only 2% describe it as minor. 1% don't know. 2% not applicable. So, you know, 95% either major or somewhat of a problem. 
I'll just weigh in. I got an email from uh, Dr. Erica Reamer, who uh, has spoken with us at Actus and is a friend of Actus, and she said she just declared war on copy-paste cloning yesterday on, on Talk 10 Tuesdays, which is another great show to listen to if you haven't already. So this is a problem. We know this. Um, and uh, any comments on the poll question as I pull up are in the news item, Charm and Alan? With this. Well, I'll go first. I'm going to tell you, I'm a little surprised by somewhat of a problem only um, being 41. I would have honestly thought that the major would have been higher, um, actually a lot higher, based on what I hear in the boot camps. Um, it, people literally, and that's a good way of described it, have um, declared war on, on cut and copy and paste. So um, yep. it's... You know, Alan and I were talking about this just prior to the show, and, um, you know, both of us have, have said that we're just waiting. And I, and I think it's already happened for a major, major issue um, because of copy and paste. And, Alan, I'll let you reiterate what you just said prior to the show, because I think all of us agreed that it's true. I, I would like to enlist in this particular war. I didn't get, it, I didn't get drafted. I didn't get a draft card, but I want to join this fight. Um, Bring him back to the draft. So, Exactly. Yeah. So my, my perspective, I want to give the coders perspective. Okay. If you've got a 25 day stay, you don't get 25 progress notes. In many cases, you get the same note 25 times. That is not useful information for anyone. It's not useful information for the coder. It's not useful information for the position. It's not useful information for the attorney, you know, if it goes to court. <laughs> Um, and so I, it's, it's, it's bad for documentation, but it's also really, really bad for patient care. I, I am amazed that it ha there hasn't been a, a case where someone has died because the physician looked at in an emergency situation, you don't have time to read the whole chart, right? So I'm amazed that someone didn't go and read the most recent note and then go render care and the patient die only to find out that the note that they read was not a recent note, but it was a, it was a two week old note. Yes. Mm -hmm. And I, and I honestly yeah, think that true. we just are unaware of it. It's happened. We just, we haven't read the article that yeah. actually, you know, yeah. Well, I'm going to just quickly review this article related to today's a, a, a super news story, but it's super relevant. Um, so this is an article from healthcare IT news. EHRs are overflowing with copy and paste records, a JAMA study show. So it's not just our, uh, attendees that are reporting this. This is actually a, a, the journal of the AMA. Uh, American Medical Association has uh, found the same th in, in a detailed survey. Um, so from the article, for all the benefits brought about by EHRs, it's long been known they have their pitfalls, whether it's ungainly user experience or agita caused by alert fatigue. Another major risk is the note bloat. Uh, caused by caregivers' easy ability to copy and paste. Uh, again, we just saw what a problem that is. This this study actually shows that. Um, so the study was uh, conducted, written by nearly 500 clinicians over eight months in the UCSF medical centers uh, inpatient Epic EHR. Um, they found in this study by the uh, AMA that. Only a small minority of these notes were manually entered, but more than 80% of the notes were imported or copied from elsewhere. Um, 
you know, we and we've been hearing actually. I've 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 heard from some Actus members about not the patient safety issue per se, Alan, thankfully, but about denials of entire stays being issued specifically because of copy and paste issues. And they specifically said a payer denied a case where meds were discontinued, that were discontinued was showing up again due to copied information from previous day's visits. Um, any, any quick advice on how a CDI could help with this issue? I know there's been a lot of talk about who should own this issue, whether it's IT, but what, what, what if you're a CDI and you are seeing this, the same progress note, Alan, verbatim, word for word, obviously copied. Any, any advice there? I think that's going to depend on the culture at your facility and the type of relationship that you have uh, with leadership. If, if you're in a situation where you don't have an ear of leadership, uh, there, I don't know that there is a lot you can do other than to do your best to try and clarify, you know, the information that is copy and pasted and is unclear as to, you know, the validity of it or whether or not it was confirmed or ruled out or resolved. Um, mm -hmm. But if you do, if you do, and I would encourage everyone to do this, work with your physician advisors, work with your executive steering committees, and um, you know, remind them that this is this is potentially creating denials. It's now been shown to create real denials, at least in some pockets. And don't be afraid to pull the patient safety card. Uh, and, and and you know, a lot of nurses who have that bedside experience know this can be dangerous for the patient. Right. How about you, Sharm? Um, any final comments on this? I would actually go into this article and and read it thoroughly and use some of the information in it and present it to leadership. Um, one of the other things that you could do is, and I always tell this to CDIs anyway, you need to get into the meetings, um, whether it's the hospitalist meeting, um, whether it's a med exec meeting, whatever it might be, get yourself there. Ask for five minutes. They're going to give you three. Um, and if that's where your voice is, you know, on that level, use it. It might not be in the C-suite, but it might be at that level with the hospitalist. I would go in and say, you know, they, wanna, um, they want less queries coming their way. Well, this will ensure that they have less queries. The less copy and paste, in my opinion, the less clarification that will be needed for the coders. That's a good right. point. Yeah, it's a great article. There is it goes into detail on by which uh, physician, you know, residents, medical students who is who is entering text mainly versus copy paste. So, a great article worth checking out. Again, as I always do, I will provide a link to it in the show notes on actus.org. All right, we're going to wrap up here. But speaking of actus.org, I just wanted to point folks in the direction. You know, I hope you enjoyed our show today with our two. CDI Bootcamp Instructors, Alan and Charm. If you're interested in learning more about our Actus Bootcamps, and you're on actus.org, if you go to the Network and Events tab, do the drop down and hit Bootcamps right here, which I'm showing you. Um, that's the best way to find out more about our Bootcamps. So um, we've got a number of them. They take you from the uh, CDI that's relatively new, which is our CDI Bootcamp. Although we always say that this class, certainly even a, a, a folks that have five or six years experience get a lot out of it. But if you've taken that class and are looking for the next level classes, we do have our CDI and quality care measures boot camp and a, a very new class, our mastering clinical concepts in CDI bootcamp. Uh, those are next level classes. Those are not classes that someone right out of the gate would take. But if you have been in the profession, want to know how 
the work of a CDI relates to quality metrics, uh, quality care metrics, uh, or if you're looking for um, the next level of clinical complexity in your CDI reviews and how to work with physicians and getting to the deeper reviews and uh, mastering pathophysiology concepts, et cetera, mastering clinical might be your, your best bet. Um, Charm, do you have any anything you'd like to add? You've you've taught the CDI and quality care measures boot camp. Anything in particular that you enjoy about this class, or you think a student might uh, find most beneficial? There is, you know, um, years ago, ten years ago, I often tell people your mission was financial. So all we want, and and that was that that was the mission. It was true. Uh, nowadays, though, to if your mission incorporates quality, you have to know what CMS has out there for the quality initiatives. Um, a lot of things that we would have chosen as principal diagnoses was based on um, reimbursement. When you look at some of the initiatives, just to give you an idea, that financial part changes completely. So for CDI and coders, can I tell you, I really think coders need to be aware of a lot of these initiatives. Nurses may be, coders might be, but it is you need to know what's coming down the pike for us, what is changing. And this is a perfect class to find that out. Yeah, it covers the hospital inpatient quality reporting program, valuable yes, purchasing, hacks. readmissions yep. reduction. We have some great case studies with PSIs and some of those complex, you know, is it a complication of surgery or not? Uh, HAIs, it's a, again, next level course for those. Um, and CDIs are now becoming responsible for those. Absolutely. All right. Well, you know, we're, we're past time here. Um, Alan has a wonderful class on mastering clinical. We can maybe cover another day. So just check those out if you haven't uh, already. Again, our boot camps, those are available on actus.org. Uh, All right. With that, we're going to wrap up today's edition of Actus Radio. We'll be back in two weeks for our next program, Advancing Your CDI Department, a case study. This is a case study of a excuse me, a program that has done some wonderful things to uh, move to the next level. Um, after that show, we're going to be getting into some special previews of our 2018 conference in May. I hope you can join us, but this will be our final regular show before we get into some um, speakers at the 2018 conference. But as always, if you have any suggestions, future guests, ideas about the format of the show, please send me an email at bmurphy at actus.org. That'll do it. For today's Actus Radio, thanks again to Sharman Allen. We'll see you back here in two weeks. Take care, everyone.